coming fast. I think we get started. Actually, we're going to intro it a little bit next week. Um, just kind of give a real basic overview. And then we'll jump into about seven weeks of that. So I think we've got, I think a hundred or something books have already kind of gone out the door. You guys are jumping in. That's great. Um, really good study. I'm really impressed by the way they put that together. Uh, hope you jump in. I don't have anything um, uh, all that new to report with regard to the facility uh, in the Northwest, except that everything's going along great. I mean, that, that's the first time I've said that in about two years. Uh, everything's going along great. All the lights are green. Everything seems to be coming together. But next week, um, if you didn't catch the update last week, you might want to grab that. Uh, it's, it's on our YouTube channel, and it's embedded in the message from last week. Bobby Castor and Pastor Lisa gave a really good update. Um, and uh, some of that team will uh, spend some time next week giving you more uh, detail. But for right now, just keep praying, hold steady, anticipate challenges. <laughs> um, just keep being the church. And uh, God is doing something here we're pretty excited about. Um, so here, here's my question to sort of put a context on what we're going to talk about this morning from uh, Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're in this study called The Remarkable Life of Jesus or something along those lines, a remarkable life. <clears throat> I think I know the answer to this question. It's almost, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a hypothetical, but it's probably true. Um, have you ever thought or imagined uh, about how you would like your life to be different? Is that just a basic human thing? <laughs> I think it is. Uh, I'm talking about like you, you, your thoughts drift toward, oh, I would like a different job or career. Um, I'd like a different, you know, standard of living. I, I, I wish I was, um, I wish I had a different personality. Have you ever thought, does anybody think that? I think that on a daily basis. Uh, maybe you want a different appearance, a, a different body, a different uh, spouse, a different group of friends. Um, I, I, like I said, I suppose everyone thinks of that. I, I was uh, clicking around the um, Google sphere, the you know the Twitter, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you call. It. I was I was googling on the internet and trying to find some uh, data that supports my premise that people are generally not very happy, not very contented. And I found this Harris poll. They've been doing this thing on happiness for like 50 years. And the happiness quotient of Americans has never risen above like 35%. Like 35% of those who polled say that they're happy, which is no surprise at all. I just, in my own experience, I oftentimes wonder what it would be like to be someone else. Almost any, almost any time I see somebody uh, radically succeed or win in some area that uh, I have some either interest or talent in, I immediately wonder, what would it be like to be that person? To excel at something that I love or whatever. I watch curling like nonstop. I'm one of those geeks. I, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm like, I want to be John Schuster. I want to, I want to know what it's like to be that guy for a couple weeks. 
In my experience, the, the happiest people aren't necessarily the people that are like better off in some way. They have some hope or some dreams. They, they travel with a conviction that things can be different or they, they might be different or, or a strong, even a strong sense that they will be different. Now, at the core, they're still looking for different. But they have some, some hope that it, that it could be. It, it might be a pipe dream. It, it, like you, if looking from the outside in, you might say to that person, you know, you have some hopes and some things that are just crazy. And those are the least happy people, the cynical people, that there is no hope and no dreams, and they want to dash yours. It's like, I really think things are going to be different someday. It'll never be different. Things never change. Like, oh, they're the least happy, and they don't want anybody to be even a little bit more happy than them. Really unhappy people are cynical. They have, they're the opposite. They have no hope at all. Or their hopes and dreams have just been utterly dashed. And we all have parts and pieces of that, right? So we're looking at this remarkable life of Jesus. And, and among other things, I mean, we're only four chapters into this, and I have, enough, I have enough from Jesus to live the rest of my life better. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, it is, it is nuts how these gospel writers, these people who knew Jesus were able to capture it, capture his words and his teaching and who he is. So among other things that we learn, we're, we're learning to understand the gospel, the, um, the good news, the, the message of heaven that Jesus is bringing to humanity. And in a manner of speaking, and I say that intentionally, it's not, it isn't exactly right, but in a manner of speaking, the gospel is a hope. It's, it's a promise arguably, for a different life. Jesus came, and for those who were marginalized, lost, broken, outcast, hopeless, he promised that there was a different option. That there's a different life. And maybe it's obvious. Maybe that's obvious. Because... If someone turns to God, you just imagine even your own, our own cyclical faith, right? This sort of up and down roller coaster faith. What happens? What is that driven by? It's driven by, I, I need something different. I need to be different. And the impulse is, well, I should go to God. If, if there's a God, he, he would have the capacity to make my life different. It's almost like a, a general understanding. Even people who don't believe in God, if you said to them, if there was a God, would he be powerful enough to change things? And the answer is just yes. So God is a great choice. A great, you know, possibility for change. If there's a God... He would be, God by definition would be powerful. He would be in control. He would be able to manipulate the world of his creation. He'd be able to make things, even me, 
different. That's just kind of an assumption about God. So it should maybe be no surprise that Jesus brings a message of change. New life, if you will. And in every case written about those that followed Jesus faithfully in the Gospels, it it meant change for them. It meant something different for them. I think most of those people, like almost anybody, maybe everybody who chooses to put their faith in the Gospel of Jesus in Him, are, are primed for change. That we need something different. We can imagine it. We can dream it. Maybe we've been unsuccessful in a, in uh, in the acquisition of it. And here here comes Jesus promising something different to anybody who would trust him. Okay, so I mentioned like the first four chapters of 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 Mark. Let let me just give you a a, a brief, you know run through of some of the things in just the first three chapters. And you tell me if Jesus is promising something different. Okay, here's, here's chapter one, verse eight. This is John. I immerse you in water, but he will immerse you in the spirit. (laughs) That's different. I'm going to immerse you in the spirit of God. Uh, that remember Jesus uh, uh, was sent into the wilderness by the spirit at once the spirit sent Jesus this anointed one where the spirit anoints him and sends him into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by evil the spirit of God moves the son of God into a confrontation that's that's different Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. It says the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, essentially, change, change, be different, and believe the good news. That's just a straight up call to different. Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. That's different, right? If you're a fisherman and someone says to you, let's put your nets down, let's fish for people. They'd be like, well, that's different. That's pretty different. And then they left their nets and followed him. They, they, they gave up, they retired their work and followed Jesus. That's a different life. They're in for a different life, right? When Jesus saw the faith of the, the, those who brought the paralytic and dropped him through the roof. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. That had never happened in this person's life ever, or anybody who even heard it, overheard it. That was not for a person to do. That was only for God to do. That's pretty different. Uh, as he walked along to Jesus, that is, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Do you know enough about Bible history and first century Jewish life to know that tax collectors were hated? (laughs) Scum of the earth, as far from God as you could possibly get. They have sold their souls. And Jesus says to the tax collector, I'm your friend, follow me. (laughs) That's different. 
And then Levi got up and followed him. That's pretty different. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. This is a Jewish, uh, uh, not, not, not formally known as, but understood to be rabbi, <laughs> a holy man, hanging out with sinners and worse than sinners, tax collectors. That's different. He says, I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. I'm looking for those who have rejected God to follow me. Those who have lost their way completely. That's not what rabbis typically did. That's pretty different. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is in 2, chapter 2, the end of it. It was made for man. This is a little bit about what Adam talked about last week. About how our God makes himself available and vulnerable for us. Rather than using us to prop himself up. We do that, but... His heart is entirely different. The rules and the the obediences of God aren't there just for us to follow them. They are for our benefit. Oh, okay. It's different. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The leaders of the Jews of the time were coexisted, working together with some of the worst oppressors of the Jews. <laughs> That's pretty different. And they're trying to kill somebody. That's pretty different. If someone is making a promise for a different life, and they're on the opposite side of the power struggle, the power spaces. Pretty different. Jesus went up on a mountainside, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that he might send them out to preach. Retired fishermen, sinful, disgusting tax collectors, to preach. This is very encouraging to me. Different. Can use people that would otherwise be seen to be unusable. Okay. So here's what's important to notice. I'm sure you already see this. These differences, what, what, what God is projecting and what Jesus is teaching and what's, what, what they're being called to are not different and new circumstances at the core, right? It's creating different circumstances. But the newness and the difference isn't just about changing the circumstances. Remember, we, we, we spent a couple uh, minutes talking about how people understood Jesus and received him to be a person that speaks with authority, and as though it was an unusual occurrence for them and somewhat off-putting for those who were in authority that usually did the teaching. 
that they would say there is something authoritative about this man, Jesus, that we don't find to be true in these. And what we find in those typically and what they're accustomed to in their authorities is that they're fixated on the external, on the circumstances, on what was right and wrong about an individual's behavior, what they shouldn't have as a part of their life and what they should be getting rid of as a part of their life. It was this external sort of oppression and push and demand from their authorities to be different. But Jesus wasn't focused on that. What Jesus did when he taught was, for lack of a better way to put it, one of many ways that it could be put, he stirred people. When he taught and the things that he taught dove and went deeper into the soul than just the demand for external. It actually, when Jesus taught, it actually caused people to move, to be compelled toward something different, not just to do something different. Something internal happened around Jesus and does. He dignified those that were undignified. He, he breathed hope where there was no hope. He didn't, he didn't take from people in order to gain power and to have his life. He gave life and lived like humanity is supposed to live. Listening, listening to Jesus in the fullest sense of the word listening. We've, we've talked about this, that, that whole, you know, linguistic course on Shema. Listening is, is understanding and doing. It's not listening in a biblical sense if you just hear something. So listening to Jesus, understanding, being compelled to do and doing, it, it makes you different, Truly. Here's another example um, that drives the point home in chapter 3, verse like 16-ish, I think. Yeah. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name, what? You know? Sons of Thunder. And, it, and, it, and the word actually means like, like internal gut level thunder. Sons of, of bold. A name change is no small thing. A name change is no small thing. When someone's changing your name, they're changing it because it reflects something new, something different. Uh, it, it suggests something much deeper than action. If I change your title, I'm changing something. Else. But I change your name. I'm changing something that is core to who you are. He changes their name. This is what Jesus does. He changes us deeply. Changing a name speaks to who you are. And he looked around in verse 34. He looks around in a circle and he says, uh, they're saying, well, what about your mother and your brother? And he goes, here are my mothers and my brothers. He points to his disciples and both men and women who were with him. 
He says, whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister. That's, diff- that's different and that's deep, right? When, 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 when your family of origin <laughs> is being redefined, that's pretty deep. So small thing. If you jump to John and look for the ways that he tried to capture Jesus' words, you get things like this at the core. In John 15, he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear, God bless you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Is this hard for us to even grasp? Jesus saying, remain in me. I remain in you. You, you, uh, you know, I, I am a, I'm a vine to which you are attached. And then as a result of the, the, that vine, you, 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 something happens within you and, you and you bear fruit. It's hard to grasp, but you do get the sense that this is much deeper than circumstantial change. He goes on, he says, just uh, as Jesus speaking, the way John records it, if you keep my commands... If you continue to coexist with me and be co-natured with me, that's what it means by keep my commands, as he's described it. If you, if you remain in me and bear fruit according to me, keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. You see? You sense do you get it? He, there is something much deeper than external circumstantial difference and change going on here. And he finished with this. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, that is about as deep as it goes. There is something completed within us. Uh, an inexpressible, unexplainable happiness, if you will, called joy that exists as a result of Jesus and the work that the Spirit does within us. This is some deep change that's being promised. You read the letters of Paul, who was maybe... maybe one of the first, if not best, to be able to articulate the practical outworkings of the gospel. It, it is, a little tangent, it is mind-numbing, mind-bending, incomprehensible to me how well Paul understood grace and mercy and the gospel shouldn't surprise me because it was right there and he needed it as much, if not more, than your average bloke. Nonetheless, he was able to articulate and, he's, articulate and he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away. A new creature. <laughs> I'm beating a dead horse at this point. This is deep. That we've been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. <laughs> Even if you don't understand that which can we fully under 
you get it. That Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is some deep stuff. You get just in the first few chapters of Mark and a couple, you know, it's all through the Gospels and all through the Pauline literature. You get this palpable sense of the deeply different sort of life that Jesus assures us exists and declares to us as possible and has nothing to do with changing your circumstances. It is a, we talked about this right at the start of the message, it is a human instinct. It is, it is, it is almost a deep commitment to the structure, this, the thought, the dynamic, that if I can change my circumstances to be better, I will be better. And that's wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. It doesn't work. Which makes me wonder, one, when will we stop making the essence of our relationship God with God one of appeals and demands and expectations for new circumstances. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a promise of sorts for change, for difference, for happiness, joy, contentment, peace, but it's divorced from the, from the idea that circumstances have anything to do with that. And it has everything to do with what God wants to do within you at a very, very deep level at the core of who you are. Jesus promise is one that is uh, intended to create uh, contentment and joy and peace by flowing into you and out of you for others' good. It's not a promise to change the circumstances in some hope that they will flow in for your good. God's promise is not to create a world that makes you feel better. It is to create a new you that is better for the world. And he says, that is life. How do we find it? How how do you get there? And that's what I think happens in the last part of chapter four. Jesus says, listen, right? He says, you got to listen in the fullest sense of the word. Listen, you got to hear from God and you got to, you got to follow through on what you hear. And then he shares three parables that line up perfectly with this idea of how do I begin to apprehend this gospel message in a way that it becomes true in my life. These next three parables lay out a foundation for our Jesus following, our Jesus listening, and our Jesus doing. And it's about a seed and a cup and a lamp. Seed, a cup, and a lamp. And I'm going to go at them in reverse order. And I'll give you, I'll give you the sort of the, the catchphrases to be able to hang on to this. Jesus says through his parables, let faith grow. That's the seed. Let things go. That's the cup. And let God be known. Let faith grow, let things go, and let God be known, the lamp. 
Okay? So the first one, the third one, which I'm going to cover first, is the mustard seed. It kind of grows out of this in reverse. In my opinion, it's a little more understandable. It builds a little bit. He says uh, in Mark 4, verse 30 and 32, says that, um, uh, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, forms large branches. Adam talked about this a little bit last night. I want to add these thoughts. This mustard seed essentially tells us to take a step of faith, no matter how small. To apprehend the difference and the joy that God has for you. Part of that equation will be steps of faith, no matter how small. The active, faithful, happy Christians that I know understand the meaning of simple faith. Basic engagement. Small demonstrations of trust. The most active, happy, joyful, contented Christians I know are not complicating the Christian life. They're just taking steps of faith as instructed by God, either explicitly in Scripture or through their own prayer life. They're just taking simple steps of faith. Not flashy. They also have a diminished dependence on advancement and notice. The reason we don't, one of the reasons we don't take small steps of faith, obviously, is we don't have faith. <laughs> but the next one is, small steps of faith don't make the news. And I am ultimately, as a human, always looking for my own good, my own advancement. And so some of the reasons that we approach God, some of the reasons we might take steps of faith that we think are because we think it's going to be better for me and I will be more substantial and I will be. But those that I see that are happiest, most joyful, most contented, most active and most powerful in a kingdom sense, are those who are simply doing small obediences of faith. They seem to understand this truth. That the exercise of a little bit of faith opens the door for all of God. You might think that the size of your faith or the step, uh, the, 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 the measurement of your step of faith is uh, directly proportional to the amount of God that's going to move into that step of faith. And that's not true. A small step of faith avails all of God to move into that space and do what he does. You might not see it. You might not be able to measure it. It might not come to fruition or fruit for a while, but you can know that a small step of faith can bring about great things. I pulled out of the parking lot here Friday night, somewhat late, and I saw a friend 
by herself pulling out of the Bloom parking lot um, and headed home. And I thought to myself, she's here by herself. I don't know what she done. I don't know if she just stopped in and, and helped sort something or drop something off and then was leaving. And had I not drove, driven away, no one would have ever known anything about what she did. And I suspect she might not have even thought it was worth the time or possibly worth any recognition. Or anything. And I think, no, that's it. 15 minutes to do something in alignment with God is pressed upon her to do. Years ago, I, you know, I, I, this has happened many, many times in different ways, but one that stands out for me, uh, a friend whose father passed away, and uh, I was out of town, and I sent him a text uh, of compassion for his loss, and only ever felt guilty about that text because uh, I didn't call him, and I, and, I, and I didn't go visit him. And I felt, well, you're an idiot. You're a horrible pastor. You texted somebody when their father passed away. That's your, that's your, that's you. I feel guilty about this everything, but it's not a big deal. But um, many years later, as you know, my father passed away just recently. We were connecting about that. And he said, you know, I'll never forget the fact that you texted me and, and what you said to me when my father passed away is really meaningful to me. I was like, wow. I don't even get that. It's just a little thing. I didn't even think it was, I thought it was stupid. But it was a step of faith. Right? Uh, another friend who's uh, since passed away, died way too young, wonderful, faithful man. He said the same prayer. I can't remember it verbatim. I have it in my notes somewhere. He said the same prayer every single morning when he woke up. He just rolled out of bed, went to his knees, and said something like, God, I'm not yours. You're, I, I, I'm, I'm yours. My day is yours. My time is yours. Use me. And at the end of the day, he said, he really apologized for getting in the way of what God wanted to do. And I was sorry, but I was grateful for what he did today. And he was asleep every day. It's like this, that's like a total of 30 seconds worth of Faith, simple steps, matters. You know the story of the widow's two cents, right? It's not about the quantity. What did Jesus say about that widow who gave two cents? What did he say about her faith? He said it was greater than any he had experienced up to that point. Faith, even the tiniest bit is like a juice button for God. I used to tell my boys this. This is a center of uh, my admonition to them when they were adolescents uh, and, and, and battling with how to, how to remain pure in their dating. I would tell them, it's not just a matter of willpower. You're exercising faith when you guard your life that way. You're saying to God, and you should say to God, I am not doing that because I trust you that it's better and there's something you're doing within me by doing that right thing. And they will tell you the experience of that. When you exercise faith and not just willpower, that faith, like I said, opens the door for God and where you didn't have the strength, you didn't, you weren't compelled, but you all, everything you wanted to do was be impure. 
the small step and action rooted in faith opens the door and then God does change your heart. He moves into that situation and gives strength where it wasn't there because of faith. Peter, I'm just rolling right now. I love you, man. Thank you. Yeah, I need you. Start playing. You're right. Plant a seed. Be curious. Be curious. About what God might do with a simple step of faith. There's a promise of different that goes much deeper than our circumstances. And the beginning of that promise coming true, contextually right, is Jesus. Can't, can't let that side. Jesus is the way. He is the solution. He is the reconciliation. He is the arbiter and the and the and the impetus and the necessity and the reality of true change. Hearing from God and then doing something. And the first of three elements of the doing is faith, no matter how small, must be at the core of the doing. Otherwise, it's just a humanitarian effort, likely designed to bring you some sense of meaning and purpose, but it won't bring happiness or joy or peace or contentment. But obedience that is rooted in and demonstrative of some faith that God will do something with my small effort is not only evidence of the change of Jesus, but it promotes it. Let me give you a minute to think, to pray, to hear, to remember that Jesus is the source of new life. Let me ask you to consider trusting him. And listening to him. Considering what simple steps of faith would look like for you that'll bring honor and glory to him and Real, real, true life deep within you. Take a minute.